0: My goal is to help people have inner peace in the middle of the conflict, to have inner peace in the middle of the chaos, to have the kind of peace where they measure their life by how many others they help find peace in the world.
1: Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today, we talk with two pastors who ask deep questions of God and how, in the midst of their wonderings, they're able to feel peace. Pastors Erwin McManus and Dominic Doane. First up, Erwin McManus is an artist and writer who works to integrate creativity and spirituality. He is the founder and lead pastor of Mosaic, a Los Angeles-based church recognized as one of America's most influential and innovative churches. Irwin walks us through humanity's lifelong struggle to find peace and why God is instrumental in helping us win that battle.
0: My name is Erwin McManus, I'm the founder of Mosaic, and I just recently wrote a book called The Way of the Warrior. Uh, the Way of the Warrior came from kind of an unusual moment, my wife and I were dra- traveling through Hollywood, driving down Vine, and I, I just sort of thinking and daydreaming and having a moment of quietness while I was driving, and I just heard this inner voice say, the warrior's not ready for battle until they've come to know peace. This is the way of the warrior. And I looked over to my wife and I said, I, I know what my next book is, I know what it's called, and I know what the first line is. I didn't know anything else after that. But it was just this idea that the, the warrior's not ready for battle until they've come to know peace, that, that every human being's in a battle, and the greatest battle in the world is for inner peace. And I just started processing how humans are incredible as a species. I mean, we, we've we harnessed fire and light. We've harnessed nuclear power and solar power. We invented the internet, the telephone and the television. But as evolved as we are, we can't seem to create peace. Peace seems to constantly elude us. And And what drove this book for me is that we'll never no world peace until we have inner peace. That the reason the world is at war is that we are at war. The reason there are wars that rage all around us is that there are wars that rage within us. And I felt like there wasn't really a a definitive conversation about how to bring inner peace. We, in many ways, hold on to a a magical view of faith. And so if we believe the right things, if we say the right things, if we hope the right things, then it's just supposed to happen. And so then we end up actually replacing a truly deep spiritual journey with magic and superstition. And that's why it leaves us so desperate. And because if you just quote these verses, you're supposed to get better. Or if you memorize this truth, it's supposed to change you. And that's why I use the metaphor of a warrior. The battle for peace is exactly that. It's a struggle, it's a battle, it's a, it's a daily engagement for that peace within your soul. And I want people to understand when you're fighting for inner peace, you're actually taking on a heroic journey. This is a warrior's battle, and it will not come easily, and it will not come without a struggle, and it will not come without a fight. So I chose this language even though I know there is, there's a sense of, um, of conflict in the language. But I want people to know that um, if you have the sense that you're supposed to go to war against something, it, uh, you need to make sure you're going to war for the right things. Even Jesus said there will always be wars and rumors of wars. How did he know that? It's because he knew the human heart. He knew that there was a war that raged inside of us. And so even for my friends who are atheists or agnostics or are Buddhists or they um, just don't know if there's a God, and they look at all the suffering in the world and all the violence in the world and say, how can there be a God? Look at the human condition. My response is actually, no, this is how we know there's more because of the human condition. The fact that we can't seem to get along as a species tells us there's something broken inside of us, something is out of alignment. It is interesting how we paint scenarios or create scenarios for ourselves where we lose hope. One of the unique things about hope, and I write about this in the book, is that for hope to exist, it has to be in the future. When our hope is placed in the past, it turns into regret. The strange thing about hope is that you can hope for something and once you have it, it no longer becomes a source of hope. So humans are designed to be connected to the future. The reason we lose hope is we lose our confidence in a better future, that we can create a different future. And it's odd, if you think about it, that we humans need hope. I mean, when, when you look at the human experience, you go, okay, every human needs to drink water, every human being needs to, to breathe oxygen, every human being needs to eat, to survive. So we know we all need to eat, drink, and breathe. That makes perfect sense because of our physicality, right? Our physiology. But how odd it is that humans have to have hope or we actually begin to die. Our souls begin to die. See, even when we talk about peace, isn't it odd that we all want peace but we've never known peace? We, how is it that we can imagine world peace when we've never experienced it? How is it that people fight so that every child will have food when we've never known a world without poverty? How is it that we can imagine a world where everyone has justice when all we've known is a history of injustice? Human ideals are actually rooted in something that is outside of reality. We have never known it as a species. It's the soul telling us what humanity was supposed to be like, what life was supposed to be like. And it's our soul's reminder to us that we're created for more. The book kept driving me back to Jesus. Jesus is clearly the singular personality that defines peace in all of human history. And, and that to me is pretty extraordinary when you think about that 2,000 years ago, in the middle of conflict and a Roman oppression over the Jews, in the middle of a world of chaos and violence and, and then dying the most violent death, Jesus becomes the icon in human history of peace, which should tell us something and I and I hope as people are searching for peace that they'll crash into Jesus. I'm convinced that the reason we're created in the image of God and the evidence for thats that is that we're imagined by God to imagine and we're created by God to create. I never accept reality as a permanent condition. Reality is just the temporary state of being. We can redefine reality and recreate it. There was a time where submarines were not reality. Airplanes were not reality. Flying to space was not a reality. Um, There was a time where the breaking the four-minute mile was not a reality. So many things that we thought were impossible are now just normal. And people who accept reality have actually conceded their future. I mean I live in LA so it's the epicenter of dreamers I think and and in fact one of the metaphors in LA is the boulevard of broken dreams. And because so many people come to LA with huge dreams and the problem is, of course when 10,000 people come with the same talent and the same passion and the same training and the same skill set. and They're all fighting for the same dream. And even if they're all equally talented, one of them is going to get that job. One of them is going to step into that particular moment, and it can be devastating. You would think people who have such huge dreams could recover easily from a broken dream, but it's not true. Most of them, when they do not achieve the dream they long for, end up being paralyzed and floating through life. And it's one of the reasons that, um, I think even conversations like The Way of the Warrior are so important, is that pretty much anyone who ever aspires to anything meaningful is going to have the loss of a dream. And one of the huge challenges is to not put your identity in the dream. Because if your value as a human being is based on the dream you're pursuing, then your value is really fragile. You know, I've had so many dreams in my life and I've aspired to do so many different things and I've actually endeavored to. Uh, to do so many different things and different careers. And, and I've had a lot of successes and I've had an endless number of failures. I just think that when you have a broken dream, what you have to do is step back and realize that, that the loss of a dream isn't the loss of your intention. It should not be the loss of your, your destiny or your calling or your future. And if you, one of the ways you, you can know you're pursuing the right dream is if you love the outcome but not the process, it's the wrong dream. If you love the process and the outcome is an extra, then you're in the right dream. And that's why when you lose a dream, you probably were in the wrong dream. Because when you love the process, you never actually lose the, lose the dream because the process was a reward in itself. And that's the beauty of it. You know, I mean, the best basketball players in the world, they don't just play for the championships, they love basketball. They just eat and sleep, and, and, and they dream it 24 hours a day. They wake up. No one has to make them practice. And there are some players who are actually professionals who have to be forced to try to pull the best out of themselves. And, and that's why there's a huge divide between the best basketball players and the ones who achieve a level of greatness. The ones who achieve a level of greatness really don't need to be coached. They don't need to be managed. They don't need to be prodded. They're driven by their own ambition and their own determination. And what I would say is, look, if you lost a dream, it was probably just a um, a midwife to get you to your dream. And so whenever you lose a dream, just see it as a part of the process of getting you to where you need to be to get to the next part of the dream.
1: Irwin's book, The Way of the Warrior, is available from your favorite book retailer. Stay tuned for our interview with Pastor Dominic Doan after a brief message about the Jesus Calling weekly prayer call. Did you know that Sarah Young, the author of Jesus Calling, prays for her readers each day? In that spirit, we want to extend the Jesus Calling prayer community out to you in a more personal way. Each Tuesday morning, you can dial into the Jesus Calling weekly prayer call, where the team from Jesus Calling and special guests will minister to us during a 10-minute call to reflect on that day's passage from Jesus Calling, read Scripture references, and pray together for each other and our world. Prayer call times are 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Central, 6 a.m. Mountain, and 5 a.m. Pacific, and are for U.S. only. For more information on the Jesus Calling weekly prayer call or to submit prayer requests, please visit jesuscalling.com slash prayer dash call. Again, to join us in this community of prayer every Tuesday morning, please visit jesuscalling.com prayer dash call. During times of transition and unknown next steps, it's more
0: important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for our special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com.
1: Dominic Doan is filled with questions about God, but today those questions don't fill him with doubt like they once did. In fact, Dominic has discovered those questions have led him into a deeper relationship with God. Dominic guides us through Scripture and points out many instances in the Bible where others, like us, asked questions thousands of years ago, and Jesus left space for them to do so. Dominic also helps us with practical ways we can address our own doubts and how we can hold a strong faith and deep questions in both hands, which he's written about in his new book, When Faith Fails.
2: My name is Dominic Doan, and uh, I was born in England, although you'd never guess it based on my accent, um, and then raised in Southern California. spent a ton of years traveling, teaching in different countries, and uh, now I pastor a church in Portland, Oregon. It's called Westside Jesus Church. So last week, Gallup Poll, uh, they, they put out this study and they found that church attendance in America is actually at an all-time low. And then added to that, um, according to another survey, this was Pew, um, they said the number of Americans who are experiencing doubts about God has actually increased 15% in the last 10 years, and that two-thirds of people um, who identify as Christian, they, they admit to struggling with doubt. So. I think we just find ourselves in this time where people are hungering and thirsting for a more authentic form of faith. And then we're also confronted with questions and doubts and and uncertainties. think of the author James K.A. Smith. He said, we don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. Uh, we are all Thomas now. And and I think that's true, just of, of this time in which we live, that many of us can identify and relate to a guy like Doubting Thomas. Um, and we, we want a deeper form of faith, but we also don't know what to do with our struggles and, and our questions. And sadly, um, in, in Christian subculture, there wasn't much room for doubts. Um, So I kind of grew up in this context thinking, I've got these questions, I, I have these uncertainties, I don't know what to do with them because what I'm told every week is you just got to have faith. You just got to have faith and you really suppress your doubts. You push down the questions with more songs and sermons and affirmations of faith. Part of the reason why I called the book When Faith Fails is because I went through a time where I I thought my faith was failing and um, almost walked away from the faith, actually. That was really hard and a big factor of that was the silence of God. had these doubts uncertainties and questions i didn't know what to do with them and i wasn't finding those quick answers that i wanted and so i think rather than suppressing our doubts um, we need to honestly engage with them i would actually argue that doubt leads to questions uh, if you begin to unpack the word doubt actually um it comes from this Latin word dubitare, which means two. So when you're doubting, you're literally in two different minds. Or think of what the book of James says the person who doubts is like the person who's kind of tossed back and forth on the waves of the sea. And I think that's more descriptive rather than a judgmental comment about those who doubt. It does feel like that. You're, you're in this place of being thrown back and forth. You're in two minds. You're torn between two perspectives. Um, and that's where questions are born because you're wondering which one is true, which way should I go. Um, but I think I think it, it takes like, wisdom uh, to learn how to live in the tension of an unresolved faith. And that's the key, isn't it? Because our faith is unresolved. We see through a glass dimly, Paul said. Um, so questions are part of the package. In fact, I would actually argue that questions, God designed it in such a way that questions are born and that questions can lead us into a deeper, richer more meaningful relationship with god so i think for example of my relationship with my wife um i love my wife i know a lot about my wife she she loves to paint Uh, she loves to cook she likes sweet potatoes which i don't understand Uh, she used to be a a cat person and then we got a dog and she repented um (laughs) so there's a lot i know about her you know over the years of being married to her and that's great um but there's also a lot that i don't know um there are times that she'll surprise me. She'll respond to something in a way I'm like, oh, I, I didn't see that coming. Or um, she will share something with me about her past or something she went through. And it's like, even though we've been married for these years, I'm still surprised and like, oh, wow, that that's that's amazing. I, I didn't know that. I didn't see that. And I would argue that the mystery in a relationship is actually what makes a relationship beautiful. So if, if I literally knew everything about my wife, if I knew every placement of every atom, if I knew every word she was gonna say before she said it, if I knew you know, where she was at any given moment, um, not only would that be slightly creepy, <laughs> but I think, it would, I think it would hinder the progression of love because true love is the pursuit of love. Mystery is the lifeblood of intimacy. And, and what if God created the world the same way? Where there are mysteries and there's uncertainties and doubts and questions, and God allows that while at the same time making us deeply, deeply curious and inquisitive. What if that is God's invitation to us saying, Hey, I've got more for you? I want you to wrestle with this. I want to reveal myself to you. And in the act of wrestling with God, I think Jacob in the Old Testament, in the act of wrestling with God through our doubts, we don't necessarily come away with all the answers, but we can walk away with a changed name. <laughs> and we can walk away having encountered God in ways that maybe we haven't had before. You know, I think one, one thing that I've seen in Christian subculture is that we get so obsessed with wanting all the answers. But it, it's not just about having every single answer. It's about the wrestle. It's about the struggle. It's about intimacy with God. I think of C.S. Lewis, who he went through his own aching raw seasons of doubt um, when he wrote A Grief Observed after his wife died. And coming out of that time, uh, he said, God, you're you're the great iconoclast, right? You're, my view of you is being shattered, uh, kind of a version of deconstruction. But he would also say in another book, he said, now I know why you give no answer, because you yourself are the answer. In other words, it's less about trying to come up with scripted answers, bullet point certainty. It's about depth and relationship that can only come through those times of wrestling with him. So for many people, their their theology of doubt begins in Genesis 3. But what I do in the book is actually say, no, let's, let's back up a little bit. What if our theology of doubt and questions should begin in Genesis 1? And, and what I mean by that is Genesis 3, where mo- pe- most people view doubt is, okay, you have Adam and Eve are in a garden. Um, they're, they're tempted, and the serpent uses questions as as a way to derail their relationship with God and bring sin into the world. And and that's true. I mean, Satan did use doubt in a very destructive way. Doubt can be destructive if it's not dealt with. And, and reacted to in a healthy way. Um, so many people, that's where their, their theology of doubt begins. They think, okay, look, doubt is always of the devil. Questions are always bad. So let's just suppress them and let's just pretend everything's okay. <laughs> um, but I but I actually argue in chapter one, no, we should go back to Genesis one because what we see there is an infinite God who creates a finite world. We see a God who is has endless power and resources and knowledge And yet he creates, and just by the act of creating, he's going to create something lesser than himself. He's not duplicating himself. He's making something less than himself, which means just by definition, the world in which we live is going to have boundaries and limitations. We're going to have boundaries and limitations. He places the first humans in a garden which had boundaries and limitations. They had limitations on their time, limitations in their knowledge. There's a lot of uncertainty. Even the animals needed to be named, right? And at the same time, in a world World of, of boundaries and limitations and unresolved mystery. He creates male and female deeply curious, deeply inquisitive. And there they were things they wanted to discover. I think if we start there in Genesis one, it reshapes how we view doubt. It reshapes our theology of questions because then we realize, oh, God made the world in which doubt and questions could exist. And actually, they can be the very catalyst that pushes us closer to Him. The authors of Scripture, um, so many of them had doubts. I mean, John the Baptist, I was just reading his story recently, and he, Jesus said he was the greatest prophet who ever lived. That's no small compliment. Um, and yet there is a time in his life when he's in prison— and he sends a message to Jesus. He's like, are you the one or should we look for another? I mean, talk about doubt. He's saying, basically, are you, are you the Messiah? I don't know. I've got questions. And Jesus didn't rebuke him for his less than perfect faith. He gave him room to ask that question. And then Jesus says, actually, this guy is the greatest of all the prophets. I mean, that's so beautiful and amazing to me. I actually think that some of the most raw and passionate expressions of doubt ever written are Are in the Book of Psalms. I mean, Psalm 22: "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Or "How long, O Lord?" Or "Why do the nations rage?" Like these deep and even unsettling questions are are found in Psalms. And here's what I love: it's not just the content of the words, but that God gave space for it. (laughs) God didn't edit out the doubtful Psalms. He, He didn't say, "You know what? Forget Psalm 22." Well, right, that's not going to be in the word. He, he allowed it space, which I think is God's way of saying, look, there, there is room to be honest. In fact, I want you to be honest. And in those times where you're hurting and questioning and you're asking why, and you're going through some tragedy or crisis, or it seems like God is silent, I want you to bring those things to me. I want you to know that I care for you. I want you to know that I'm standing with you and beside you. And and just tell me what what it is you're experiencing. Come to me when you're weary and heavy laden, and I will find you rest. And the Bible is jam-packed with stories and examples and characters like that. Women and men who had doubts and uncertainties and Jesus, he gave them space. I mean, Matthew 28, the great commission, and he sends them out into the world and you have this amazing line. It says some worshiped and some doubted. <laughs> and if, it, if I were Jesus, I would Divide the worshipers from the doubters. I'd like, okay, worshipers, you're part of this thing. You know, doubters go home. But he doesn't. He, he sends out both the worshipers and the doubters. They were vital to the revolution that Jesus began that literally turned the world upside down. So I, I would say, you're not alone not only that, um, you're actually right where you need to be because God is going to use this season in your life to grow your faith. Don't give up on your faith. Don't give up pursuing truth. Uh, Don't give up seeking and searching for the answers and for God. He will meet you on the other side. In the process of learning um many many times we discover oh yeah i didn't know that i didn't i didn't see that i mean i can't tell you how many questions i've had about scripture that were so confusing to me that once i actually began to look into what it meant it's like oh that wasn't as weird as i thought like for example like the book of ruth you have that whole story of one night she comes and lays it Boaz's feet. And it's like, what is that about? That just seems like the weirdest thing. Um, but in that culture is a form of marriage proposal. And once you begin to peel back some of those layers, like, oh, okay, this makes sense. And uh, so that process of learning, I think not settling for the low hanging fruit, um, not just settling for you know, cat posters or cliches, um, but, <laughs> but actually saying, I, I want to go all in and I want to tear into the story and I actually want to read both sides. You know, so, so that's what I did actually. Um, there was a time in my life where I was, I had a lot of questions that, uh, I, re- I read some of these atheists, what they were saying about God. And the further I went down that path, the further I realized, Oh, this is actually a worldview that's, um, pretty empty. But Nietzsche, he once said, if you stare into the abyss, the abyss is going to stare back into you. And, and, and he's speaking about this worldview of nihilism and atheism, the emptiness of it, the the, the aching loneliness of it. And so for me, I did take a season and uh, it's a couple year period actually. And I'm going down this path. I'm looking at what this worldview has to say. And I get to a point I'm realizing like, oh, okay, I've read a ton of these books now and I've studied their worldview. And I, it's empty. And um, so that process of learning and, and reading books on both sides actually, in a weird sort of way, strengthened my faith. <laughs> because then I'm able to counterbalance that with like the story of C.S. Lewis or, or others who have gone through similar times and like, okay, there are some answers here. I think there's like N.T. Wright who offer like really intellectual, robust answers to some of the questions that we, we have. So the point is like like Alexander Pope said, that that a little learning is a dangerous thing Um, but when we drink deep and, and study both sides. I, I think that's where wisdom's found. And I think one way, one practical way that we can move through our doubts is actually through study, through listening to a good podcast or reading Jesus Calling or tearing into a good commentary or sitting down with, with a teacher, a professor or a pastor or someone who's further on in their spiritual walk. So I think everyone's heard about, about Jesus Calling and um, it has impacted so many lives. Um, Including my own. I just find it deeply, deeply refreshing. So I pastor this church in Portland. There are so many people who have been shaped and inspired through its words as well, um, because it does, it helps you slow down, it helps you just be in the moment and in a posture of receiving from the Lord. That's so what I love about it, because it's impossible to read Jesus Calling without asking the question, God, what are you saying to me today? <laughs> what, is, what is your heart for me today? And just bathing yourself in that day after day after day actually puts you in a place of receiving. So here's a line from Jesus Calling, February 29th. I just I love these words. I think it just lines up with so much of what we're talking about. It says, you are on the right path. Listen to me more. And less to your doubts. I'm leading you along the way I designed just for you. Therefore, it is a lonely way, humanly speaking. But I go before you as well as alongside you. So you are never alone. Do not expect anyone to understand fully my ways with you. Any more than you can comprehend my dealings with others. I'm revealing to you the path of life day by day and moment by moment. As I said to my disciple Peter, so I repeat to you, follow me. And I love that, especially those words, follow me, because I think it captures what the journey of faith looks like, that when Jesus invites us to to come after him, it's it's following. It necessitates movement and motion and change and travel and adventure. Um, And so that means there's going to be seasons in our life where We're sensing him and his presence is real, closer than our next breath. And there's going to be other times where we wonder where he is. Um, But it's in times like that, the journey, that he's taking us deeper and deeper into himself. You know, the word question actually comes from a root word, uh, quest. Uh, And and that's what we're on. We're on a quest. Uh, We're pursuing God. And uh, he's with us through it all, the highs and lows, the ebbs and flows, of faith, and even if it feels like our faith fails, the good news is He never will. I'm learning that God is actually speaking, but I'm not always listening. Um, you know, the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning, um, she once said that Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush a fire with God. But only He who sees takes off his shoes. And, and so when we begin to understand, you know, what God is speaking, maybe it's through his scripture when I open it up in the morning, or maybe it's in a conversation like this one and something you say just resonates and, oh yeah, Lord, you're, you're speaking to me that way. Maybe it's just the beauty and wonder of creation as you're walking outside and just taking it all in uh maybe it's just you know you're you're moved by some piece of art or or poem and it touches your heart i think these are all ways that that god speaks to us if god exists then there's no such thing as ordinary ground right it's all holy like this moment right now wherever you are is is holy ground and the only response then is like moses okay i'm gonna take off my my sandals i'm gonna i'm gonna learn to listen even in the mundane moments even in the hectic moments sitting in traffic or mowing the lawn uh washing the dishes god you're there and what do you want to say now how are you speaking to my heart now um so it's not just the big dramatic times where god rolls back the clouds and okay here's here's the answer like i think we all have times where it's like really obvious god spoke but I think most of the time, 99% of the time, it's the subtle whisper. It, it's, uh, the um, it's the sublime. It's the those moments that m- when we just learn to, to be still, that, that he's there. And we discover he is God.
1: You can find Dominic's book, When Faith Fails, at your favorite book retailer today. If you'd like to hear more stories about how to go on after struggling with life's toughest moments, check out our interviews with Bishop T.D. Jakes and worship leader Don Moen. Next time on the Jesus Calling podcast, we talk with Robert Morris, the founding senior pastor of Gateway Church in Dallas. Pastor Morris has written about the many ways we can be generous to others with what God supplies us. He addresses the importance of good stewardship of the resources we're given so that we can live a life of generosity, even when we may be struggling ourselves.
0: Stewardship involves every area of our life. Because if God owns all the money in my bank account, then uh, I don't even grieve if He asks me for some of it, to use it for some reason. But it's more than just the money. He owns my life. So that's why I wrote Beyond Blessed is because for us to truly live a life of blessing or a life that blesses others, we've got to be generous, but we've also got to be good stewards of what God gives us.
1: Do you love hearing these stories of faith weekly from people like you whose lives have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Calling Stories of Faith podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review so that we can reach others with these inspirational stories. And you can also see these interviews on video as part of our original web series, with a new interview premiering every other Sunday on Facebook Live. Find previously broadcast interviews on our YouTube channel on IGTV or on JesusCalling.com slash video.